Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Hello, listeners. Before we begin this episode, I want to invite you to subscribe to my recently launched spin-off podcast. It's simply titled, Emma Filipoff is Missing. In this spin-off show, I'm going to provide even more depth to my coverage of Emma's disappearance than just the episodes I'll be releasing as the Nighttime Podcast. If you've been following my coverage of Emma's case and would like to hear even more, go check it out. Emma Filipov is Missing is available on iTunes, Google Play, and anywhere else the Nighttime Podcast is. So with the five-year anniversary of Emma's disappearance occurring on November 28th, now's the time to catch up. Go subscribe now. And with that behind us, let's get to tonight's episode of the Nighttime Podcast. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Mysteries, crime, the paranormal, and the weird. During my time researching and investigating the strange and unusual, I've learned a number of valuable life lessons. I'm reminded of one during the production of nearly every episode of the show, it being the age-old saying, there are two sides to every story. In my experience, I would make one minor change, though, and make it clear that there are at least two sides to a story. It seems to me you can take any mystery or notable event and with very little effort find the underlying battle being waged between rival factions who support one idea or the other. When preparing episodes of the Nighttime Podcast, I do my best to include these competing perspectives, even if they're unpopular. An example of this would be my series covering the Oak Island mystery. Many believe there to be some sort of a treasure hidden below the island's surface. Some suspect it to be a forgotten pirate's cache, or others are certain it's a priceless religious artifact. But there is a much more sobering theory that gets far less attention. In episode 4 of my series covering Oak Island, I invited the controversial science writer Brian Dunning to share his thoughts on the island's mystery. To sum it up in just a few words, he believes when one views the available evidence with a scientific focus, it proves that the Oak Island mystery is nothing more than a misinterpretation of common geological processes. But with that said, I don't highlight the more underwhelming explanations as a mean to debunk the more fantastic. It's actually the opposite. My opinion is that the competing explanations only add to the mysteries and give the open-minded observers contrasting explanations to consider. Think of it as a battle of good versus evil, but instead it's magical versus the mundane. In tonight's episode, we will again hear a much more sobering view of one of the recent topics. In my Halloween special, I was joined by Charlie Reindress, who helped share the incredible story of Esther Cox and the Great Amherst Mystery. To those of you who've listened that are skeptical of paranormal phenomenon, that episode likely made your ears bleed. But if that is you, I'm going to make it up to you tonight. I think you'll find this episode as refreshing as a cold glass of water. When I began researching Esther Cox's story, I found the case compelling, both because of how outlandish some of the claims appeared, but also because the historical record seemed to corroborate them. 
As I dug into the story, it wasn't long before I began finding details that made me question the motivation of some of the players in the story. But I decided to first present the commonly told version of this poltergeist as the Halloween special. Tonight, in this follow-up episode, I'm going to introduce you to the author of a book that many feel serves as the kryptonite for the Great Amherst Mystery. In 2012, Lori Glenn Norris and her best friend Barb released a book called Haunted Girl about Esther Cox and the Great Amherst Mystery. In the book Haunted Girl, the pair share the results of their in-depth research into Esther's life before and after the rumored haunting. As you'll hear shortly, they didn't find much that couldn't be explained by greed, exploitation, and a longing for attention. In the following segment, I'll share my recent conversation with Haunted Girl's author, Lori Glenn Norris. She'll explain her book, her thoughts on the case, and if you agree with all she has to say, she'll throw a glass of cold water in the face of your Halloween hangover. Laurie, I'd like to just start with an introduction. Can you just tell me a, a bit about yourself and your background before you wrote Haunted Girl? Yes. Um, I was born in River Hibbert here in uh, Cumberland County, about a uh, 20-minute drive from Amherst. I am a writer and a researcher. I uh, write historical fiction and nonfiction, and I'm particularly interested in the lives of women uh, who lived during the 19th century. You're most well-known, at least to me, for, for your book, Haunted Girl, which is about the Esther Cox story. How did, how did you first get involved in that? Like, do you remember first hearing about that story? I remember hearing about Esther Cox when I was a little girl, little odds and ends about uh, uh, the noise around the house and that the buildings where the house used to be on Princess Street, how they were haunted, in particular um, a, an old Canadian tire store that used to be there and how the the paint department was particularly haunted. And, uh, <laughs> and um, in the late 80s, early 90s, I was uh, the curator at the Cumberland County Museum. And um, every once in a while, I would do a little bit of uh, digging around about Esther or somebody would come in. And a lot of people were interested in the story, of course, so they'd come and ask about Esther Cox. Um, and then I moved on to another position, and my best friend, Barb Thompson, took over as the curator of the Cumberland County Museum. And Barb became particularly interested in Esther and started thinking about Esther as a, as a human being and what happened to Esther after the Great Amherst Mystery was over. So uh, Barb started looking at doing research uh, in the newspapers, and somehow found out that Esther had, um, along the way, had moved to Brockton, Massachusetts. And Barb started doing some uh, research down in the States, uh, long distance, but down in the States. And her and I would talk about Esther a lot, and uh, talked about how, you know, what happened... What would her What would her life have been like before the Great Amherst Mystery? What was it like after the Great Amherst Mystery? What kind of uh, young woman was Esther Cox? And uh, we were pretty sure that there was a lot more to Esther than just the fifteen months uh, of the Great Amherst Mystery. And 
uh, one day, I had just finished my book, Cumberland County Facts and Folklore, and I said to Barbara, well, why don't we start working on um, a biography of Esther? It went from there, and the book was published. So it was, um, it was a long-abiding interest on Barb's part in particular, started us on, uh, on the trail of Esther Cox. Great. And now, leading up to starting to research the book and whatnot, I'm assuming that what you knew about the story was largely based on Walter Hubble's book, The Great Hammer's Mystery. Yes, it was. I had read uh, the Hubble book many, many years ago as, uh, as his bird. We knew about Esther Cox, You Were Mine to Kill, and um, about Esther, and, and Esther's name as well, being a kind of a, Esther was a figure of curiosity, and she was an oddity, and something would happen in uh, the Canadian Tire Store, or something would happen in an office of the building where the house used to be. Uh, they'd have a computer glitch, and somebody would say, oh, that's just Esther again acting up. So she was very much kind of a figure of, uh, kind of a figure of fun, a very infamous figure in Amherst. And um, kind of the the butt of a joke in a way. Mm-hmm. Like you and, and many other people in Amherst or that know this story, initially it was, again, the commonly told version of the story, which is what Walter Hubble wrote about. Uh, your book uh, that, that you co-wrote with Barbara Thompson, Haunted Girl, has for the most part changed or at least called into question the popular version of the story. W- when you set out to write it, w- was that the plan initially to basically blow the lid off the whole thing? The plan initially was to find out about Esther in general, just what kind of a life had she had, what was her, what was her family life like, uh, what happened to her after the Great Amherst Mystery. It's only when I went back and read The Great Amherst Mystery by Walter Hubble again that I really started to say, wow, this seems to be a lot of exaggeration here and a lot of self-aggrandization on the part of Walter Hubble, because he certainly makes himself out to be the hero in this book. So uh, it was very interesting that um, the book kind of played into our hands as something that um, kind of helped our story of Esther and helped us to understand more what possibly would be going on. And I would say right now that I researched and wrote the book, and Barb researched the book, with an idea of, um, oh, I lost my train of thought here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Something happened. I don't know what. <laughs> uh, my wiring, but... Uh, it's the ghost of Esther Cox. She's trying to sabotage this. Exactly. <laughs> when all else fails, blame Esther. <laughs> now, there's, again, so much of the story is based on Hubble's historic account. So uh, what did you do to, to research it and basically find some errors? Like, what, what did your research look like, and where were you getting your information from? Well, I hit the newspapers. Mm-hmm. Barb and I went back in time. And um, there was quite a bit in the paper about Esther at the time because the Certificate Post in particular was very, very interested in the story. And almost every day there would be a tiny article about Esther Cox and how noises had been heard outside the house that night or people were gathering around that type of thing. And, and were these articles that you were finding, like, were they, did they seem to be written kind of tongue-in-cheek, or was this like a serious, like, journalism-type, you know, investigation into it? 
it started out to be quite um, uh, taken in earnest. It's only later on that kind of, uh, and there was kind of like a newspaper war going on between the Amherst, uh, the Amherst Gazette and the Chignecto Post. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I forget now which paper was, I think the Chignecto Post was the one kind of pro Esther Cox, uh, believing that there really was something going on. And the Amherst Gazette was saying, no, this was all a hoax and, uh, and she, you know, she's doing something here and she should be, uh, you know, that it, it should be brought to light. So it turned in kind of, it, it turned into a media circus pretty early on. Interesting. But your book is seen by a lot of people as sort of the kryptonite to, to Walter Hubble's book or his account. Uh, dur- I love it. <laughs> no, during your research, at what point did you find, did you start finding things where you're, where you really called into question his story. Do, do you remember any one piece of information you, you found where you just said, oh, my God, this is different? than Well, I one don't. thing that I found is that he explicitly says in the book that uh, Dr. Karit was there the evening that the writing, supposedly, Esther Cox for a Mind to Kill appeared on the wall. But um, in November, I think it's November, of, November 7th, 1878, Dr. Kareet said that he knew nothing of the writing on the wall, and he knew nothing of fires being set. Hmm. So I think that was kind of the turning point right there for me. And I started to compare Walter Hubble with, with what was going on in the newspapers, mm-hmm. and there was really a lot of exaggeration uh, happening. And if you read, if you really read The Great Amherst Mystery by Walter Hubble, it's really quite comedic, mm-hmm. uh, and he's, he had set himself up, Hubble had set himself up as someone who was kind of a, like he was from New York, and he was kind of a B-list or C-list actor down in uh, the theaters of New York, and during the off-season, in the, uh, the summer season, he would become part of, there used to be like traveling theater shows come up from the state, mm-hmm. come from Boston in New York, and they travel all around the Maritimes. So Hubble was in Halifax, and he was part of this theater group, and he read about the Great Amherst Mystery in the paper. Okay. Time, he says in his book that, you know, he had two things in mind. One, he was going to prove that Esther Cox was a hoax, and number two, he was going to make money doing it. So that was his that that was his his main object was to make money, and he also sets him out sets himself up as a real hero, as far as he claims that he's the one that taught Esther how to talk back and forth with the spirits, like knocking one two three you know uh, two knocks for no one knock for yes or whatever, but it was really uh, J Albert Black from the Chignecto Post who months before um, Hubble showed up, Black came to the house, and he and Esther and Jenny and the rest of them spent the whole, the whole evening talking back and forth. He, he taught them how to do that, supposedly. And that, then that leads me to ask, like, uh, were, were this story was already happening before Walter Hubble got involved and exaggerated it or whatever he did. What do, what do you think, started this in the first place like where did where did this come from you know to to lure someone like walter hubble into it uh we have to start with esther which is what barb and i wanted to do um 
And I think I'll go back a little bit mm-hmm. about Esther's background, which I think might explain a little bit of things. Mm-hmm. Please. A lot of people, I think, uh, believe Esther was born and brought up in Amherst, which she was not. She was born in Stuyak, and she was the youngest of uh, six or seven children. And Esther was three weeks old when her mother died. And Archibald Cox, um, soon after his wife's death, remarried. And uh, his second marriage lasted for three or four years, and then his second wife died. And he went on and married a third wife and moved to Machias, Maine. And while he was, after his first wife died, Esther's mother, the family was scattered in Stuyak with different friends and relatives. All these children lived in different places. Esther was brought up by her grandparents. And it was only when Esther was about 15 or 16 years old and her younger, her older sister, Olive, had married Daniel Teed. Daniel Teed was from Malagash. Uh, they ended up in Amherst, and Daniel was working with the Boot and Shoe Company. And they tried to gather all the family up again to live with Olive and uh, Daniel. So at the time of the Great Amherst Mystery, there was nine people living in that house. Mm-hmm. Olive, of course, had her husband and her children. And uh, Jenny was supposedly the beauty of the family, and she was working uh, as a seamstress. Uh, shortly before, about two weeks before, two or three weeks before the Great Amherst Mystery supposedly started, Nellie uh, married mm-hmm. and moved to the house, married a Snowden and moved to Sackville, New Brunswick. So everybody seemed to have something, have something in their lives except for Esther. And of course, as a young single woman uh, who didn't have a job outside, she became, she was pretty much uh, a maid for Olive, you know, doing all the hard work, making all the meals, looking after the children. Olive worked hard too, of course. But um, Esther didn't have very much in her life, I don't think, at that time. And she would have grown up, as many people did, did at that time period, with um, kind of the, the specter of death kind of always hanging over you. Her, her mother, of course, she never knew her mother. Her mother had died. She had a younger, she had an older sister, Abigail, who died as an infant. So Abigail and the mother would be two individuals that were likely spoken of from time to time in the family. Esther's stepmother died when Esther was a little girl. Esther may have blamed herself or other people may have blamed her for her own mother's death. And it's also important to realize during this time, it started, uh, really started to, to uh, gain momentum after the Civil War in the United States with so many young people dying, so many young men dying. If spiritualism became very popular during that time, there were so many people, so many parents, so many mothers who didn't want to believe that their young sons were gone. And they looked for ways to kind of... Uh, you know, kind of believe that they would they would see them another at another time, or they weren't really dead, or they could still talk to them. Spiritualism, mesmerism, supernatural uh, aspects were all very popular during the 1860s, 1870s, and um, 
even before the great the what we call the great Amherst mystery started, the Teed family were having seances and uh, trying to make the tables tip and all this type of thing. So there was a great interest in spiritualism in uh, you know in the culture in general and in Amherst in general and with uh, with the Teed family as well. And I think what and it's kind of believed that uh, the whole thing kind of got started as far as what we call the Great Amherst Mystery is when Bob McNeil came on the scene. And Bob McNeil worked at the Amherst Boot and Shoe with Daniel Teed, and there's some evidence that he was a distant relative of Daniel Teed. Um, Bob McNeil was from a large family in Malagash as well. Mm-hmm. And somehow, um, we're, nobody knows how... Esther and Bob knew each other. Um, they might have been, uh, you know, might have, they might have, he might have been her ball. They might have had, uh, we don't know the nature of their relationship at all. Mm. But one thing that um, is, and we, we get this from Humble, is that they went on a buggy ride one night and something happened. Now, Esther came home and claimed that uh, after a month or so, she lets the story out that Bob supposedly pulled a gun on her when they were on their buggy ride. Now, whether the gun is a euphemism for something else, I don't know. We don't know the nature of their relationship, so we don't know if if uh, they had had they had had a sexual relationship and Esther was uh, guilty about it, according to Hubble. Bob disappeared the next day after their buggy ride. Uh, But in fact, uh, Bob McNeil went back to Malagash and lived his life there. And the Teed family knew that, and Esther knew that. It was reported in the papers that that Bob Teed was uh, was, uh, back in Malagash at one point. And this brings up a whole other point that if... uh, Bob McNeil had done something to Esther, sexually assaulted her, uh, spoke to her inappropriately, pulled a weapon on her, raped her. We don't know. But he was not brought to task for it. So was this something that happened, a sexual assault that happened, and um, he wasn't, uh, you know, he was none the worse off for it? Uh, I'm assuming that that would make Esther feel angry, perhaps, very sad, feel like she'd been taken advantage of. I'm assuming that she thought that uh, Bob was going to propose to her, perhaps they'd become married. It was two weeks after that happened that these these uh, manifestations started with Esther. So, so you suspect, that, or, or at least things line up in such a way that maybe Esther could have been doing some of these things, looking for attention? Is that what you're, what you're kind of getting at? Um, I think there's a need for attention. I think there's a need to perhaps do something so she wouldn't feel so help, so very helpless. Uh, there seems to be some sort of an underlying anxiety. Perhaps there was anger. There may have been a nar- uh, narcissistic nature there. Hubble himself notes at one point uh, that um, she was a young woman who people sometimes had to tippy-toe around 
And if she didn't want to do anything, she wouldn't do it or she'd make a big fuss. So this seemed to be a way, it was kind of like a passive aggressive thing. Mm -hmm. And I go into a lot in the book about um, uh, things like thread, things like fishing line. One thing Hubble, uh, not Hubble, but uh, Dr. Price, who had come in uh, years later to do some investigation on the Great Amherst Mystery, and he said that everything that moved came towards Esther, not away from her. So it would be easy to, you know, tie a fishing line around your ankle and then tie it around a scrubbing brush or a bucket or anything. Uh, and I think we also have to remember that uh, in 1878, 79, there would be no electricity in the home. They didn't have electric lighting. So in the evenings, when things were happening, the houses weren't as well, well lit as they are now. There was a lot of dark corners. There was a lot of things that could happen and couldn't be as well seen as perhaps they're seen today. Interesting. I, I never thought of that that aspect of it. And, and as far as Hubble's involvement and what brought him into the story, uh, are you reasonably certain that he was basically just looking to kind of gain some notoriety from involving himself in the case? I think so. And I think that a lot of people did the same thing. Uh, when Hubble comes to town, uh, I believe I'm right in saying that Esther was already living with... Uh, this uh, owner of this oyster saloon called John White. So Hubble goes to see John White, and he has uh, the idea that they're going to take Esther and, like, take her on the road, like, uh, you know, like a traveling uh, amusement. Mm -hmm. So they start out, and they're going, they've decided they're going to go to, like, nine places around the Maritimes, and they're going to go to Boston, they're going to go to Halifax, what what they plan to do is Esther will be sitting on the stage, a stage in an auditorium or a theater, and Hubble will stand up and talk about the manifestations of the Great Amherst Mystery. And he's hoping at the same time that the ghost will perform on stage. Mm. Well, it never does. They go to Moncton first, and nothing happens. And then they go off to Chatham, New Brunswick, and... Uh, Hubble is up there, you know, pontificating for about an hour, and Esther is sitting on a chair on the stage, smiling. And see, they're and they're they're asking, they're paying, asking people to pay money to come and see this. But the people in Chatham weren't very happy on, about this. And after the show was over, they kind of they they chase um, they chase Walter Hubble and Esther down the street to their hotel. <laughs> And then they immediately get out of town after that. So Hubble, he's an interesting character because he's he 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 acts like he's he acts like a, this big city guy that's coming into Little Amherst to the, this these this backward group of people, and he's gonna you know he's gonna set them straight. But as I said before, on the other hand, he's kind of very naive himself, and. And um, I did a little bit of research on Hubble after the Great Amherst Mystery, and he was involved with other things like this. He was involved with other, you know, like shady operations or characters and trying to prove yes or no that, that 
you know, there was a ghost involved and things like this. And it's only after Hubble gets back to town and the roadshow is not working out, he's not going to get any money that way, that he decides that he's going to write a book. And Hubble's book has been very popular. It's never been out of print. It's uh, 1878, and there's not many writers that are able to say their book has been in print for for this long. The only thing is, is that he, we know about Esther Cox because of Walter Hubble. So he does a service that way, but he didn't do, he didn't do very well by Esther. He didn't treat her very fairly. And now, I, when I did my first episode about this story, I, I intentionally left off uh, Walter Hubble um, taking Esther on tour and trying to, you know, make some some money or capitalize on it in some way. Uh, aside from you know these couple little shows that that you mentioned, as well as the book, do, like do you know during his lifetime has he kind of been promoting himself as you know I'm the guy who you know, saved Esther Cox or got involved in the story? Like, was this something that he kind of wore as a badge of honor? Oh, yes. He called himself a master of the super mundane. And he, he, I'm sure he dined out on the Esther Cox story for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. One thing that, um, or or another thing from Esther's life that, that I thought was really interesting was the the arrest and imprisonment of her, where I, I just felt like this detail certainly held some insight into what was going on. What did you learn about about this period, and did you find any information on the trial or anything of that nature? Esther did come to did go to trial. Her and Van Amber, and Van Amber was another. This was another family that she went to live with when um, Mr. Bliss, who was the landlord of the house, he was tired of all the publicity and his his house, you know, fires being set in his house. So he said Esther had to leave. So I think at that time she went to the Van Amberts, and they were living outside of Amherst somewhere. And Esther, something was missing from a neighbor's home. She had been uh, doing some work for a neighbor of the Van Amberts, and they had things go missing. Uh, I think it was like comb and brush and some clothes and some fabric. And it was found in a bundle at Van Amberg's house. So Esther, you know, Esther took it. Esther took it and brought it over there. And the police arrived at Van Amberg's home and found it and arrested both he and her. So they went to court the next day. He was dismissed, but she was given four months in prison. She only served one month. But she was given four months in prison. Okay. And I also heard that she got in some trouble for, for uh, being blamed for arson uh, relating to some burns on fire. Yes, and that was the same. That was the same. Uh, that happened during the same time period. And yes, I believe that Esther did uh, did burn those burns. And it's all it's all a matter of um, you know getting attention. And uh, and she knew how to do it. I mean, she had everybody. She had the media paying attention to her. They used to follow her around. Uh, or you'd see sometimes they'd say in the paper, you know, Esther wasn't out today. Esther stayed home today. So they were they were constantly looking for something. And it, so maybe it was like a bit of her looking for attention, but that mixed in with kind of like enablers surrounding her. If there was this media war, they would want the juicy story. Then you got people like Hubble who are coming basically to prey on her. So I guess maybe it just was kind of the perfect, uh, the perfect mix to support this. You know, it got out of hand. 
I think Esther and Jenny, they were just, it all started off with uh, the box of patches under the bed, which likely they had a string attached to. And um, I think it wasn't long before William Cox, the brother, and John Teed, Daniel's brother, got involved. But yeah, it, it was like a perfect storm of the media, spiritualism, and the belief in the supernatural, and Hubble coming in there. And for someone who looked for attention, she was being overwhelmed by attention. And I think at the end, the arson and um, the stealing were kind of the last, the last gasp for attention because Hubble had left by that time and he was, he was there writing the book. You know, I think that was the last gasp of, of attention. And, and this is kind of the, the part in the story where basically Hubble's account ends because the great Amherst mystery, basically his book ends around this point. So, so after this, what did you learn about what comes later in Esther's life? Like what did the future hold for her? Hubble did mention that she went to see uh, a Mi'kmaq doctor, a Mi'kmaq, uh, you know, wise man, to break her away from this curse. Mm -hmm. But that's not mentioned in the papers. Hmm. Nothing is mentioned in the papers about that. And the media, two or three years later, after uh, this was all over, the media was still following Esther around. If something like that had happened, they would know about it. And as well, the Teed family uh, were Methodists, strong Methodists, and I can't see them going outside their religion to ask help from another from another religious group. Hmm. The whole Mi'kmaq thing, I think, was a story made up by Hubble because he had to. How did you end it? It just stopped because, and I believe it stopped because Esther was she knew. That was she couldn't do anything else to gain attention or to fascinate people, and it was just she was publicly shamed by this time. But what happened after that is uh, Esther went back after after she got out of jail. She went back and she was living her very same life as she was living before. Uh, this was in uh, December of 1879, but in 1882 she married um, a coal miner from Spring Hill. Adam Porter, and uh, her and Adam and their son lived in Spring Hill for a number of years, and then he died. I wasn't able to find out how Adam died. She married a second time. She married another coal miner called Peter Shanahan, who was a widower and who had a lot of children, and her and Peter finally made their way down to looking for work down to Brockton, Massachusetts. And at this time, Brockton, Massachusetts was like the shoe city of the United States. There was a lot of shoe factories down there. And then Esther died very young. She died when she was 52 years old. One source, uh, I think it's his obituary, said it was because of heart trouble. But her death certificate says it was something like something like gastro, something with her, her stomach. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly... Um, how she died, but she, uh, you know, she died as a very young woman, unfortunately. So her, Esther's life was not really a very happy one. Now, seeing as as your book um, that you wrote along with Barbara Thompson, Haunted Girl, for, for the most part, 
debunks or at least takes a lot of the the wind out of the original story, uh, the popular version of the story. When when you released this and shared everything with you know the community, did you receive any negativity that you were you know kind of going against what is a you know a really popular story? You know, I thought I might, but I didn't. People, I didn't. I don't know if it was just apathy or. Uh, but no, I didn't. I, people are a little disappointed sometimes when I start talking about it because they, they, you know, just talking just one-on-one, they get a little disappointed because they, uh, you know, they want to hear that, that I believe that there, that there was a poltergeist and that Esther was haunted by a poltergeist. And I think they're a little disappointed, but I didn't really, I've not really gotten any backlash you do believe that the paint section of the Canadian Tire was haunted, though, unrelated to this, I hope. Oh, I do, yes, definitely. <laughs> and, <laughs> now, you know, what I find interesting is that uh, still today, I mean, people um, back in Esther's day, there was a lot of belief in the supernatural and spiritualism speaking to the dead, uh, the dead coming back to, to tell us something. And a lot of people still believe in that, today and and the Esther uh, the, the Esther Cox great Amherst mystery you know on in the face of that is is a great story because it seems quite marvelous and fantastical and I think that's the reason why it has been popular for so long and in the horror genre uh, websites ghost story websites Esther Cox is internationally known much more so than she is in her home, own area. Yeah, I, I found that part interesting as a lot of people, like I, I kind of run in those horror circles that you mentioned, but I see a lot about Esther Cox, but people would have no idea, you know, where Nova Scotia is or, you know. No, if, that's right. Especially not where Amherst is. No, that's right. And now where all the information was out there, just ready for you to kind of, you know, flip through some old newspapers to kind of prove this all, whether you want to say wrong or exaggerated or whatnot, why do you, th- why do you think it's taken this long for someone to collect this information and, and share it the way you have? Well, it's interesting because the book came out in 2012, which was exactly 100 years since her death. Esther died in 1912. So it was 100 years and we really did, Barb and I really did think that the book needed an update. And um, and I will say that it's our interpretation of the Great Amherst Mystery, because no one can really know what really happened. We weren't there. It was a long time ago. Um, Walter Hubble, to my mind, is an unreliable uh, narrator and an unreliable witness. And uh, it would have been interesting if, uh, it had been the book had been written by another type of a person. Uh, we might have found out a lot more about Esther Cox. And I guess when you take away Walter Hubble's telling, there's just not a lot there to really be, you know, puzzled and mystified by. Well, now some of the the newspaper accounts. I mean, the newspaper accounts do talk about things that happened in the bedroom, this type of thing, and all of these. Well, like they always. They always uh, trot out the experts, you know, the doctors and the ministers and the lawyers. Uh, but these these people were also, they didn't know at the time what was really happening. And this was, like, electricity was still a marvel to people at this time. And a lot of them, 
believed in the supernatural, believed in spiritualism as as an answer for things. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think that there's anybody really reliable in the whole thing that, you know, the only people that knows what know what happened is, uh, and they have, we all have our own interpretation of it. And Haunted Girl is my interpretation of it. And, uh, you know, other people could come along and read, um, read other explanations into it. But one thing that um, that I find is interesting is nothing happened to Esther or around Esther that a human being could not do. Like there was nothing happened that was beyond uh, beyond human capacity. Humans can set fires. Humans can make loud noises. You know, humans can can move things one place to another. It was it was a lot of Esther Esther's own personal problems. Uh, coupled with uh, sensationalism. And they sold a lot of newspapers, and Hubble sold a lot of books. And now in, in, in your future, Lori, do you, do you plan on you know, taking this type, of, um, this type of investigation into any other you know, local stories or folklore, or is this kind of a one-off thing for you? Well, it's interesting that you mention that, because I've just uh, finished a novel. It's called Found Round, and it's going to be the spring of 2019. And it is about a young girl called Mary Harney. And Mary Harney lived in a little hamlet in Cumberland County uh, called Rockley. And again, like Esther Cox, the only reason that we know that the story of Mary Harney has come down to us is because it's a ghost story. Mary Harney supposedly haunts uh, places in Rockley and, uh, and along the River Phillip River, that type of thing. And her, uh, Mary Harney disappeared, and uh, no one really knows whatever happened to her, but a ghost story built up around her. And so I've written a novel uh, about Mary. And, and again, it, it's a novel this time, uh, because there wasn't a lot of um, uh, documentary information on her like there was on Esther. Mary never had a Walter Hubble. <laughs> hmm. So, yes, but I'm not interested in these women because of uh, the ghost story. I've, I've heard about them. The ghost story is what brings them down to us. And if it wasn't, if it wasn't for the ghost stories, neither one of us would know. Uh, not, we wouldn't know about either Esther or Mary. But so Walter Hubble, you know, he, he, on one level, he's, he's done a great thing. He's, he's uh, brought Esther to us. It's just the way that he treated her in the story. I want to thank Lori Glenn Norris for taking the time to share some of Haunted Girl's background with me. For anyone out there interested in learning more about Esther Cox and what may or may not have been a poltergeist haunting, I'd recommend starting with Walter Hubble's book, The Great Amherst Mystery, then reading Laurie's Haunted Girl. The books go wonderfully together and are both much more complicated than what I got into in this two-part series. Also, I expect you'll hear more about this book and Esther's story in the future. Haunted Girl was recently optioned into a film. Hopefully that project will happen. 
And with that, we will conclude tonight's episode. If you're interested in hearing more content, please check out the Nighttime Patron Group, where for $1 a month, you can support the show and access supporter-exclusive bonus content. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. On behalf of myself and the show's listeners, I'd like to thank the continued support of the current patrons and welcome the newest members to the group. Stacy Allen, and my pal who holds a bachelor's degree in politics, Scott Gillard. Without you all, the production of this show would be impossible. For anyone else who'd like to support the show, but is unable to do so financially, you can help me by telling your friends about the show and by leaving a positive review for nighttime on Apple Podcasts or whatever equivalent you use. Here's a recent review uh, that Nate with five T's recent left me on iTunes. Entertaining! Exclamation point. Thank you, Nate. Your review goes to show that sometimes less is more. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on and off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or feedback on the show, I always enjoy hearing from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. So with all that said, until next time, keep looking around and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.